Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money only on Money FM 89.3. Good morning from cyclones like Kompasu closing over one of the world's busiest ports in China, the Yantian port in Shenzhen, to the White House pushing for 24-hour service to relieve U.S. port snarls, particularly with California ports, which are a key gateway, by the way, for goods made here in Asia. We take a step back for a bigger picture of what's happening with logistics ship traffic jams. Later, the word stagflation is being bandied about against a backdrop of high inflation and corporate warnings of supply chain issues. Stagflation, is it a real market risk? And then we'll pivot to the SEC signaling openness to a possible Bitcoin futures ETF. Would this largely be an inferior product for consumers? What would an approved Bitcoin futures ETF fund actually track? Let's check in now with our questions with Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. So Arun, is cargo congestion worsening at major ports? Is there a port crisis shaping up? In one word, yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. the, the entire situation is just an absolute mess, right? Uh, t- taking a step back to give some idea of the complexity and scale of this problem, 90% of the world's global trade takes place by sea. 70% is through containers, right? So you exclude like coal and other oil and all of the other stuff. That's the other 20%. But 70% is through containers or the entire world global trade which is being done by sea. In terms of the scale-up, like going back to the year that I was born, Mm. you were highlighting how, you know, U.S. ports are suffering through major congestion issues. The U.S. imported close to about $300 million worth of goods from China, right? Million. This year, in 2021, it's been close to $43 billion. So, and, you know, all these numbers make complete sense from uh, just a very, even if people did not know the exact numbers, it makes intuitive sense, right? China has become the manufacturing bowl of the world. Mm-hmm. The U.S. obviously, you know, gone through a huge growth spurt, consumerism behavior, all of that stuff. That's the backdrop. Then we came in, and then, you know, we came into this whole aspect of efficient supply chains. Toyota, which made this whole thing famous called JIT or just-in-time manufacturing, went across the board from manufacturing to ordering to placing it in the warehouse of the person who orders the goods to selling of the goods off the shelves of be it your department store or whatever else. Everything was running like clockwork, right? We as consumers, I mean, if you just think back two and a half years ago, Mm pre-COVID, click a button. Uh, click a couple of buttons on your laptop and boom, this good suddenly shows up at your doorstep. Life is fantastic. COVID threw a huge wrench in the works. From the beginning where initially, I mean, we go back to Jan, Feb of 2020, when ports in China were shut down, factories in Asia were shut down because of the spread of COVID, especially in China. We thought this was going to be a couple of weeks, uh, Obviously, demand, once COVID spread across U.S. and Europe, demand naturally dropped. People were only basically buying tissue paper, right? I mean, that was what made headlines in the news. Other than that, there was nothing else. Then came along the fact that 
people suddenly realizing, okay, wait a minute, this is not going to be a one-month affair. This is going to be a six-month, one-year, God knows how long. Let me start ordering the entire set of stuff that I had in the office, stuff that I wanted for the next two, three weeks. I'll just start ordering it all in right now. And that led to, you know, there's this term that this famous uh, shipping person used, container get-in, where <laughs> literally this entire supply chain just went out of whack, right? This whole aspect of just-in-time, which was working very smoothly when forecasting was done and which it could be done accurately. While the supply of goods were relatively muted because factories were still closed, demand shot up. And that just completely turned around this issue of supply chain. Now, overlaying all of that with what's been happening in the shipping space, for the last decade, container rates, oil tanker rates, product tanker rates, you name it, have been in the doldrums. I mean, you can take away like a couple of months during the COVID pandemic because of certain oil storage issues. But other than that, it's been in a huge doldrum. And that's led to, you know, obviously the capitalistic society that we are living in. Lesser and lesser investment went into that space. Higher cost cutting, headcount reduction. I mean, you look at all like railway stocks in the US, shipping stocks, container stocks, you name it. Mm-hmm. All of them have been taken quite a bit of a beating over the past five to 10 years. You have this issue now suddenly where there's a lot of demand with the economy opening up, people placing orders for a lot more goods, but factories still running relatively okay. I mean, we're going through spurts now where Vietnam is now shut down. I think uh, last week it finally opened up a little bit. Uh, That obviously is the clothes manufacturing uh, capital of the world. China is going through its ups and downs. The storm that you mentioned, I think that's just more of a minor blip, right? Like within a couple of days, that'll be resolved. But this issue of recurring COVID cases coming back up, coupled with the Chinese government policy of zero COVID cases, lead you. there is no choice but to shut the entire port or factory down. All of these things combined has led to a huge spike up rate. I mean, if you look at uh, this container ship charter index, it's gone up 10x literally over the last year. Gosh. I was reading this article today for Harry Potter toys, mm-hmm. like the wand, which used to be, you know, you could buy it for like 20 pounds, mm-hmm. now is being getting quoted at 40 pounds, and there might not even be enough stock for December. Not just because of the fact that the factory might not be able to produce it, that's one issue, but the transportation of it, because ports are shut down. Then along with that comes, you finally need to find a container ship that has space available, Then you need to have a space that can dock, be it in California, in the East Coast, Jersey, New York, or in the UK. Then you need to have a truck driver to pick up those goods and actually deliver it inland. Truck driver salaries are now going at over £100,000 a year in London, and they are yet not able to satisfy those job openings, right? Mm. The entire situation has gone into a huge mess. And... This doesn't seem that it's going to get resolved in the next three to six months either. This is going to be over the next, you know, the entire calendar year of 2022, in my opinion, at least. And, if, you know, falling over into 23. And then that bring, brings the question of this increase in prices with your likes of Walmart, Tesco, all of these guys uh, chartering their own ships at exorbitant rates, might I add, that price increase has to be passed down. 
there's no other way, mm-hmm. right? And that's going to potentially lead to inflation, which causes other issues. It's just a huge problem because, again, you know, 90% of world global trade is being done by sea. When your underlying costs of travel by sea is increasing so much, it's going to have reverberations across the entire economy. So there could be a lot of Christmas stockings that are missing Harry Potter, Harry Potter wands, <laughs> number one. I, I, yeah. I, I mean, like as you were mentioning, right, President Biden had to get involved. Because this problem is not just one issue of a couple of factories in China shutting down. Mm-mm. I mean, who all has he met in the past like week, right? He met up with the port of LA guys mm-hmm. to ensure that it's going to be 24-7, uh, just like the port of Long Beach. Roughly 40% of container traffic comes in from those two ports. So addressing the biggest problem first makes a lot of sense. Get these guys to be running 24-7. Then he had to have a meeting with the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles, you have to issue a lot more commercial driver licenses so that that crunch of getting goods delivered from the port to inland can be resolved. Wow. Then he met up with FedEx and UPS to ensure that, you know, just to confirm that everything is working well, please increase the number of flights, etc., that you have for chartering so that it can, you know, the, the smooth flow of uh, the supply chains can still take place. Last but not the least, he had to meet up with the likes of Walmart, Amazon, and everyone else where retailers, they have to play their part. They can't just keep relying on infrastructure being provided by other companies, Mm -hmm. especially given the size that these guys are at. Take matters into your own own hands to some extent, figure this out and let's work together to solve this problem. Hence, the government had to be involved. You need to get all of these different players to be working in unison. And that's exactly the scale of the problem that we are dealing with, right? And attention was not paid enough to this Mm. because things were going relatively okay a couple of years ago. Yeah, so just to pick up on that point of what can be done, I I was uh, reading uh, an article by a comment from Morten Engelstoff. So he's the chief executive of APM Terminals, and that's one of the largest port and terminal operators. And he's basically saying, you know, with this supply chain crisis, this can only be resolved really with a slowdown in consumer demand. And I'm, I'm scratching my head thinking, how impossible is that, you know, to say in order to break this vicious cycle, we need to want less or lower consumer demand? See, that's a very difficult, I mean, from his perspective, I completely understand, right? Because the poor guy is probably working 24-7 for the past three months and he still has a huge logjam of 20 ships that are outside a sport mm. just waiting to be uh, offloaded filled up with empty containers sent back to China slash Asia and to get restocked. The problem is that does not go well for the world economic growth, right? You suddenly take away a certain demand factor Mm -hmm. and you start actively tell, I mean, the whole U.S. economy and hence to a very large extent, the world economy has been running on based on the wallets of U.S. consumers. And if that suddenly starts to drop, from the perspective of world growth, I think that's going to have a much bigger effect than certain logjams in uh, the supply chain that we're dealing with right now. Like these problems are solvable, right? But it will take a certain amount of time, capital investment, coordination with the government, all the various stakeholders playing ball to ensure that we can go back at least to some extent to how the world was running a couple of years ago. And it's going to happen, right? Like mm. vaccinations are being rolled out number of cases are dropping, uh, albeit there are certain spikes. I do believe that, you know, eventually just the way 
the entire global supply chain is structured, sure, there'll be certain dislocations here and there, a little bit more amounts of localization, which are going to cause certain effects. But I think overall, we will get back to status quo. This aspect of trying to suddenly, you know, shift the mindset of consumers to what was happening 40 years ago. Mm. I think if it was possible for a period of a couple of months, that would be great. I just don't think it is going to be, you know, uh, palatable by any ruling uh, democratic party to start telling its citizens, oh, you know, please stop spending, uh, go back into your shells and just survive for the next two or three months because we're dealing with supply chain issues. So given this issue, congested ports, global shortage of truck drivers, constricted space at warehouses, is it inevitable that I'm going to pay more for my shipping rates or I'm just going to have to experience abnormally longer turnaround times? A bit of both, uh, most definitely. I mean, you know, we saw Apple coming out with its uh, uh, news flash a couple of days ago where they said the number of iPhone 13s is not going to be is going to be about 25-30% lower than projected for this calendar year. And that's because of supply chain issues, right? Because of the chips that go into the phones, they won't be able to manufacture enough of them. It just means that if you really desperately are one of those people who want to spend $2,000 on a phone, you will have to sadly wait for two or three months before you uh, partake with that money. It doesn't mean that the demand has gone away, which I don't think is a bad thing necessarily. And, you know, we live in a relatively free market society. So people with the means who are willing to pay up even more money, sure, you can get your goods in time. From the aspect of price increases, it naturally will occur. That being said, though, while, you know, 10x of container uh, cost, the cost of containers to be shipped from uh, east to west, i.e. Asia to the U.S., going up 10x, it sounds extremely high, and it is. But the effect of that on the underlying price of the good is nowhere nearly 10x, right? Because the cost of transportation is just a percentage of the underlying good. It, in some cases, it could be relatively high, especially for the lower priced goods. Mm. But for the higher priced goods, it's a smaller percentage. Hence, that entire, you know, the fact that if it's 10x, I don't mean to be fear mongering mm. or anything. I was just stating the actual increase based on the index. In terms of the underlying good, we can see probably anywhere from a couple of percent to maybe 10, 20, 30 percent price increase. And depending on what kind of a good that is, it can obviously hurt the bottom line of the household's balance sheet, right? No doubt, it will. And that will be painful. Will that directly lead to, you know, do we really want to be buying three of these items or and two of those items? Or maybe we can survive with just one of this for the next month or two, and then we'll potentially purchase these other items the next calendar year. That's the thought process that's going through a lot of households' mind, which makes a lot of sense, and it yields the desired result of not necessarily, you know, burdening the supply chain system by overstocking necessarily. And just space it out, give it some time, let the supply chains go back on track, Mm -hmm. and then all will be well in the next, you know, six months to a year, we'll start seeing... Uh, improvements in what's happening. Again, this is not going to be overnight. It's going to take a little bit more time. And hence, sadly, consumers do have to suffer a little bit. Mm. But overall, though, you know, things are still working, right? Like I can still go on Amazon right now, Mm. click two buttons and get my stuff delivered at home at my doorstep. Used to be one day. Now it takes about two or three days. 
So it's not the end of the world, I feel. Yeah. Maybe we were being spoiled before. You right? can already feel it. Yeah, I mean, we were lucky enough, even during the pandemic, you know, there were memes going around. My days are distinguished between days that packages come and days packages don't come. <laughs> That's basically it. And... <laughs> And now it's just you're going to have to wait longer and you'll have more of those days packages don't come. All right. Uh, let's talk about stagflation, which seems to be on the lips of quite a few people in the market. So stagflation, slow economic growth, relatively high unemployment or economic stagnation uh, occurs when the money supply is expanding or while supply is being constrained. Big words there. Arun, what is stagflation and why is it feared? I mean, very simply, stagflation is you have inflation, but yet that's not on the back of rapid economic growth. In fact, it's stagnant growth. Hence the joining of the word, making it stagflation. Mm. It's quite a scary situation, right? Because imagine a world that is not growing in terms of GDP. Hence, your salaries are not increasing, but yet inflation has really picked up. And hence, you know, your standard of living starts dropping quite substantially. And, you know, all economies of the world have gone through this for a certain period of time. And it is very scary. My personal perspective, though, it's a little bit more fear-mongering than anything else because it catches headlines of people, right? Because it's kind of like roadkill, right? You kind of want to see it, yet you probably shouldn't be. From my perspective, the reason why I think that it's interesting thing to talk about to some extent, but the reason I'm not fearing it is mm. because... I, I believe the economy is primed for a lot quicker growth than, leave alone stagnant, right? I, I think the economy is raring to go. I think people who are out there in US and Europe whose economies have opened up post this COVID pandemic, life has gone back to normal. Things are going really well. Tremendous amounts of job openings. Companies are hiring. Salaries are increasing. And maybe us in Singapore, maybe to a slightly lesser extent because things are opening up a little bit more over here, but definitely around, you know, my colleagues that I talked to in Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, that are still in a lot bigger lockdown situation right now, things are difficult, right? So there's the aspect of stagnant growth might be there, mm. but when you have the largest economy in the world, the U.S., that's, you know, really raring to go, China, I think is going to come out just fine. Uh, and we've talked about it on the show quite a bit. Regardless of their policies of zero COVID, you know, I personally think that they're going to relax that to some extent, probably by the end of the year itself. And the world will go back to how it was running, albeit maybe at a slightly slower pace, but it'll still be completely fine. So coming off that low base, mm -hmm. I think growth will definitely be there. So that aspect of stagnant growth, I just don't see it. Inflation is something that I believe will be occurring. And I think that's going to be a topic of conversation that we will be having a lot more over the next couple of months going into 2022 also. The flip side, though, is if the central banks of the world globally can act in a smart manner, interest rates are at basically rock bottom, right? So there's ample amounts of ammunition and firepower the central banks in the world, especially the Fed has, to go about increasing interest rates to, to some extent, tame inflation, right? A little bit of inflation is actually good from the perspective of pricing power, from the perspective of companies being able to increase their pricing, making it slightly better for the top line, as long as the economy is growing. Mm. So if central banks play it well, uh, which I believe that they are to some extent, you know, South Korea increased interest rates, New Zealand did, 
Singapore did yesterday morning, mm-hmm. not interest rates, but increase the, you know, the slope of the currency uh, sneer, band. the currency band. From all of those perspectives, the central banks are looking into the future. They realize that, you know, maybe this aspect of transitory inflation, which we were hoping is not going to be there. Let's maybe just cool the brakes a little bit because they're seeing the growth coupled with inflation. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So as long as we are in this kind of Goldilocks period to me, hmm. and you know, it's, it's strange saying that considering we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic, but purely from the economy perspective, in- inflation is picking up, which is kind of healthy to some extent, especially considering rates are so low. So there's ample opportunity for the central banks to increase it. Yet there's a good amount of growth. Yes, we are facing supply chain issues. And that was what we were talking about for the last 15 minutes. As long as that gets resolved relatively soon, and by relatively soon, I mean, you know, six months to a year, and I'm very confident of that happening. Mm-hmm. I personally don't believe that stagflation is going to be a big issue that the markets will have to deal with. Inflation, yes. Stagflation, no. Yeah, my academic friends would agree with you. I have some friends and they're writing an article about, you know, comparing what we're going through now with the end of the First World War and that great economic transition that led to the roaring 20s, you know, 1920s, all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ready to roll. Uh, maybe I'm, I might not be that as bullish as that, <laughs> but I definitely do think that uh, we are primed for, you know, good things to be happening, in, at least in the economy wise, for the near term future. All right. And finally, before we let you go, uh, on this show, we've been talking quite a bit about a possible Bitcoin futures ETF. And yesterday, one of our guests mentioned not being caught up in a bloody contango. Um, you know, we know the SEC chair, Gary Gensler, has signaled a preference for an exchange traded fund focus on Bitcoin futures. And U.S. regulators have yet to approve uh, any ETF in this regard, although more than a dozen companies have been looking to launch one for a number of years now. Um, what, what, how would a Bitcoin futures ETF, Arun, I guess the heart of the question is, would this be an inferior product? What would it actually track? So the way a Bitcoin future ETF would work is very similar to what takes place in the commodity side of things, right? Because I think that's the closest parallel where me as a consumer, if I, like buying gold, there are two ways to do it, right? One is I actually go to a retail shop, buy a kilo of gold, move that from the shop to my house, keep it under my bed for safekeeping. And that way I've gotten exposure to gold, hopefully appreciating in value. The other way to do that, especially when you have you know, either more money to deploy or you want the convenience of using the financial markets rather than the fear of actually doing it through retail and then stockpiling gold, et cetera, you can get into the futures market, click a couple of buttons on your discount brokerage platform, and get exposure to the price of gold pegged at some time in the future. So say right now we are sitting, you know, 14th of October today. I can go into my Interactive Brokers account. I can take a look at the price of gold that is traded in the market for the months of November, December, January, Feb, March, well into the future, right? Depending on what the underlying is, I can get exposure to the future price of gold for that certain calendar month. That's the exact same thing what they're looking to do with Bitcoin futures, where potentially people, you know, they don't have an ironclad safety crypto wallet. They don't want to get exposure into that instead. But yet at the same time, they've heard about all this hype about cryptocurrencies. They still want to get involved with the price appreciation, hopefully, of 
Bitcoin or other such cryptocurrencies. So what they're hoping for, and hence, you know, when there's a demand for this place, obviously investment banks of the world and other financial institution players will try to create that product to satiate that demand. Along comes this Bitcoin future synthetic ETF where you're actually not buying the underlying Bitcoin. You're just basically buying this price that's mentioned on your computer screen, which will give you exposure potentially to the price of Bitcoin. So let's say Bitcoin is trading at $55,000, give or take right now. Given the market expectations that Bitcoin, considering it's gone up like 30, 35% in the past two or three weeks, the market participants or the traders that are in the market believe that this will continue to happen. Hence, you know, maybe the price of Bitcoin for the November future contract instead of 55,000 is being placed at 56,000 because that's the future expectation of where the market believes Bitcoin will be to some extent. And correspondingly, month on month, it's a higher by a thousand or $500. That means that this curve is in contango, right? Where the future prices are higher than the current spot price, which is the complete opposite of backwardation. So, you know, let's take some examples of when there's been an oil crisis, right? Mm -hmm. When people believe that there's way too much oil being produced, suddenly oil goes into backwardation, which means the future price of oil is lower than that of the current price, which is something that happened during the COVID pandemic because the demand of oil completely dried up. But anyways, coming back to Bitcoin, that's what's happening right now, right? There's a lot of interest again. Everyone's all gung-ho that Bitcoin's going to go up to $100,000, $300,000, whatever it is. So they just want exposure at any price to some extent. So along comes this Bitcoin, synthetic Bitcoin futures ETF, where I can keep buying what the ETF will do or what I can keep doing is if the futures curve is created is continuously buy the one month forward future of Bitcoin as and when time rolls closer and closer to November, whatever date that futures contract is, what the ETS will do is then collapse that November future contract and then buy December's contract. And it will keep doing that on a monthly basis, which enables the buyer of the ETF to not be concerned about actually having a wallet and taking delivery of the Bitcoin, but yet to some extent getting that price appreciation. The problem obviously is, especially in something like Bitcoin, whose, you know, the market expectation is that the price is going to be so much higher, there's a very high contango. So you're kind of buying Bitcoin one month into the future, always hoping that the price will increase by, currently I think it's about $1,000 or something, right? Like 2% give or take. Mm. So you're hoping that it's always going to be increasing by that amount. Now, taking a step back, when Bitcoin moves up and down 8 or 10% on a daily basis, it kind of makes no difference. That is true, but overall, in the long run, that 2% per month or 1% plus per month keeps chipping away at your earnings as compared to just buying the underlying Bitcoin. But, you know, the latter obviously comes with problems of, you know, having to store Bitcoin in your own wallet in a secure manner, etc., etc. So that's the entire problem, the pros and the cons of dealing with this uh, synthetic Bitcoin's future ETF. Oh, thanks so much. What a great primer that was, Arun. We appreciate it. Arun Pai joining us live here on Money and Me. He is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Time for the news. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. 
To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.